0: Good morning. Yeah, Thank you for joining us this morning, whether you're here in person or online, it's great to be together. As many said, my name is Dave Heinrich. I'm one of the pastors here, and I know that there is great enthusiasm for what's happening after the service, but I hate to disappoint you. Uh, I, I had a doctor's visit this week uh, with my doctor, and she said, I'm not able to go into the dunk tank. I won't bore you, I won't bore you with all the details, but she said, She said to me, Dave, Dave, you can't be immersed. You can only be poured or sprinkled. (laughs) There you go. That's not only a dad joke, but a Baptist pastor dad joke. There you go. Well, I will be in the tank. But I have to say, it does concern me, the great enthusiasm by which you all signed me up to go in there. We're going to be talking about that in the weeks to come. Actually, you know. I want to say, in the same way that, you know, the children were welcomed back to school across our province today, it's been said many times, today is our church's kickoff as well. The marking of the beginning of another ministry year. You know, on Tuesday, when I asked my boys, how was the very first day of school, my youngest told me that he and his classmates, they sat bored in their middle school gymnasium for about 30 minutes while their principal talked about the school motto Describing the kind of community their middle school strove to be and then also how the students should conduct themselves in light of that motto. I have a lot of sympathy for that principle because that's going to be similar to what we're going to be doing here both this morning, but also for the next six weeks. See, we are starting a series today talking about our church's vision statement and also our core values entitled, who we're becoming. If you can put that slide up, that would be helpful. There we go. And like that middle school principal, myself and others who will be speaking about uh, will be speaking about our motto, which describes the kind of community that we are striving to be, and how we should conduct ourselves in light of our vision and our core values. Now this morning we're going to be focusing on our vision statement, which reads. We are a Christ centered, cross cultural, and intergenerational community called to model unity and to live prayerfully, generously, and redemptively in a broken world. It's beautiful. I love that. And it des- both, I love it because both it describes who we are, but also who we are becoming. But most of all, I love how it starts. We are Christ centered. And that's where we're starting with our series today. Focusing on being Christ-centered. Now, I can't make any promises not to bore you like my sons and his friends were sitting in that gymnasium. And it's highly unlikely that we're going to be out of here in 30 minutes. But if... The dream of a utopian middle school society is worth half an hour of my son's time. How much more does a vision for a kingdom of Jesus-oriented community deserve? You see, in Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul says that it deserves everything. Our entire lives. He exhorts the church in Colossians and us to live Christ-centered lives. Because he is worthy. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them with me to Colossians chapter 1. Let's read it together. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and and of the love that you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day that you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of the gospel on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day that we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light? For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the church in Colossae that Paul writes this letter to is one that he has never met before. Paul likely wrote this letter from a prison cell, probably in Ephesus, to This group of believers who came to faith through Paul's friend Epaphras, who shared the gospel with these people, and then he told Paul about their belief in Jesus. Now, though Paul has never met these people, he still is an important voice in their lives. Paul says that at the beginning of the letter, that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul's not bragging when he says that he is an apostle, he's not pulling rank on them, reminding them who is in charge. For Paul, being an apostle is a task. It's not a status. When Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, that was the beginning of a whole new life for him. Not only did he go from persecuting Christians to them becoming one himself and following Jesus, but he was also called by God to share the gospel and minister to the Gentiles. Gentiles are all the non-Jewish people. And in Paul's time, that included an eclectic group and of cultures that made up the Roman world. And so Paul writes to this church in Colossae, which was primarily made up of Gentiles, because he believed that God gave him this task of ministering to these Gentile churches. And he writes this letter for a couple of specific reasons. One issue he addresses much later on in this letter, it's Well, theologians don't really know. It's a wrong belief, a doctrinal error, or some controversy that some of the people in the church have given into. But hey, it wouldn't be church if there wasn't a controversy. Am I right? Unfortunately, I am right, right? And if you don't get what I'm talking about yet, just stick around here or any church long enough, and you'll soon understand. This is because church is a family. And like any family, you know, you you love the family, and you're loved by the family, but every family is dysfunctional in some way or another. And Paul, he knows this about each of the churches that he writes to. Now, he doesn't write to them expecting them to shape up and be perfect. Rather, Paul writes to these churches to help them work through the dysfunction. Now, the other reason he writes this letter is to encourage the Colossians in their pursuit of living lives that are congruent with their newfound faith. You see, faith in Jesus is not just about believing the right doctrine, though that is part of it. It's also not only about this relationship that we develop through prayer, contemplation, worship, and Bible study, though these are essential pieces of our faith as well. Faith in Christ must also result in changed behaviors and lifestyle. This is because when we come to faith, we receive the Holy Spirit who works within us to curb the behaviors that are sinful or incongruent with following Christ. And the Spirit also prods us into actions that both glorify God and bring Christ's kingdom to earth. As theologian David Garland says, Faith is a vibrant force that expresses itself in how we live. Now Paul confesses that this is the reason that he is writing to them in verses 9 to 10 when he says, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. He wants them and us to live a life worthy of the Lord, which please him in every way. You see, this is to be the goal of every Christian, that we honor Jesus by living Christ-centered lives because he is worthy. Now, none of us live a life uh, that is worthy of the Lord all of the time. I'm sorry if I just burst your bubble. But all of us are still sinful, each of us mess up, but we don't need to despair, right? Christ is so kind, he is so patient that he forgives us and he can restore us. But just like our vision statement, it's not only a description of who we are, but also who we are working to become. Like, we are a prayerful community, but we are working to be even more prayerful. We are a unified community in a lot of ways. And we are going to try and become even more unified. Paul's letter also recognizes that the Colossians have already begun to live this life worthy of the Lord, even though they still have a long ways to go in pleasing Christ in every way. He starts by commending them in verse 4 when he says, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of God's people. Isn't it interesting that the first telltale sign of this new life in Jesus is the love that they have for Christ and for his community of faith? Paul says it again in verse 8. Epaphras told us about your love in the Spirit. As far as Paul is concerned, love for Jesus and the community of faith is the true sign of of God at work in their lives. And he is thrilled and grateful to hear about it. Jesus also said that this love was the telltale sign of authentic faith, and not just love for him, but love for fellow Christians. He says in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Say it again, Jesus if you love one another. N.T. Wright goes on to clarify what this biblical love is like, saying, it doesn't necessarily mean good feelings about each other. What matters is behavior, which marks out so much of the world, such as lust, anger, lies, and so on, which split up families and communities, that that is being replaced by kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, and acceptance of one another as members of the same family, even where the major differences of race and background and culture. And so the first way that we live these Christ-centered lives is by loving one another. To be clear, we're to love everyone. Jesus even says in Matthew 5 that we are to love our enemies. But so much of the Bible Um, there's this special emphasis on God's people learning to love one another. And I say learning to love one another because love doesn't always come naturally. It takes effort, and love takes practice. And though love doesn't necessarily mean good feelings, love does look a certain way. You know, I've heard people uh, speak hard words to others— in not such kind ways. And they say, well, I'm showing them love. I'm speaking the truth. But there is a a flavor to love. There is characteristics to love. We know love when we taste it and see it and smell it, right? Like, we know that there is love in certain things. And some things, though people might pass them off as love, they're not very loving. Paul describes the characteristics that make up love in 1 Corinthians 13, saying love is patient. And love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects and always trusts. Love always hopes, and it always perseveres. And so if I want to analyze my actions and whether they're loving or not, I could simply slip my name in to where it says love and just evaluate is dave always patient let's not go through the rest of the list because each one of us has failed and we will fail to love each other like this and so we need to apologize to one another and to extend forgiveness to each other but then this is exactly how jesus wants us to love He says in John 13, he says, love one another as I have loved you. And what has Jesus done for us, right? The greatest way that Christ has shown his love for you and me and this world was through extending us forgiveness. Every one of us has rebelled against God. Every one of us, instead of living according to the creator's design, we've all gone our own way we've chosen to live independently or live according to the ways of this world but jesus obtained our forgiveness through his sacrifice on the cross which paid the debt that we owed for our sins ephesians 1:7 says in him we have the re- we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of god's grace so friends The first way that you and I live these Christ-centered lives is by loving one another. And this love is demonstrated in a humble attitude, in sacrificial service, and in an eagerness to reconcile with others, just like Jesus. Paul goes on to further describe what lives worthy of the Lord that please him in every way looks like, suggesting four other ways that we can do this. The first way, he says, is that we are to bear fruit in every good work. Now this image of bearing fruit is a common one that is used throughout the Bible and it's a particular favorite of Jesus. He uses it several times. The metaphor compares our lives to fruit trees whose purpose is to produce fruit or good works. Now the trees that Bear fruit; They're highly prized by the gardener, who is God, who works to protect the trees, lovingly care for the trees, and he even prunes the trees to make them more fruitful. But the trees or lives that are unproductive, that don't bear good works or only produce rotten fruit, Jesus says that these trees aren't worth the soil which they're planted in, and they are destined to be chopped down and thrown into the compost pile. Now this is a little frightening. However, the point is, the lives which please Jesus and are those that are productive in good works. Now the beauty of this is that there is a boatload of good works that each one of us can participate in that please Jesus. The Bible describes a variety of these good works such as working for justice, helping the poor, or refugees. We can participate in peacemaking or reconciliation efforts. We can use our time, talents, or resources to serve the church family or our neighbors. In fact, the list of good works that we can participate goes far beyond any that I can mention in this sermon or even that the Bible notes we can, we can participate good works with such creativity and ingenuity. The key to a work being pleasing to the Lord is whether or not it is good and productive. Meaning, does it honor God and bless others? Now, we may not feel like we have a lot to offer the Lord in the way of good works. Trust me, you do. But one story that I love from the Gospels that I think puts this into good context is found in the Gospel of Luke, or John, where Jesus, he's teaching this crowd of over 5,000 people, and he's been going on and on for a long time. So if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me, right? But the people are getting hungry, Right? And he doesn't have a barbecue after the service to feed them. So he tells his disciples that they need to go out and they need to buy food for all of them. And the disciples, they're like, Jesus, it would take half a year's salary just to give every person one bite of bread, he, they say to him. But there is a little boy who has a lunch, and he goes over to Jesus, and he offers him five little buns of barley and two fish. And Jesus, he miraculously feeds this entire crowd from this little boy's lunch. And there's so much food that they gather up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. And I'm sure everybody's mind was blown at this, but especially that little boy who offered up his lunch. The point is, we never know how God can use what we offer him. However big or or little, it may seem to us. And we cannot worry about the results. Our job is to be faithful, and we need to trust him to use it however he will. The second way that we live our lives worthy of the Lord, Paul says, is by growing in the knowledge of God. Now, growing in understanding of God, it's not limited just to Sunday school or to seminary classes. Certainly, we need to grow in knowledge when we we do grow in knowledge when we listen to stories from the Bible or study theology and pursuing these kinds of understanding is essential but God says in verse 9 that it also includes knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives this means that not only do we grow in this knowledge through study and classroom like experiences which sunday morning is a bit like that But we also grow in understanding God's will for our lives when we spend time with God in prayer. That is when the Holy Spirit can speak to us directly. We also grow in knowledge of God when we spend time in community with other believers where His Spirit speaks to us through other people. This is why it is so important as followers of Jesus that each one of us participates in a church community. And being a participant means so much more than just showing up on Sunday mornings, whether online or in person, to hear a sermon. Because we need to learn from one another. I need to learn from you. You need to learn from those who are sitting around you. And as the Holy Spirit speaks through each one of us, this is why participating in a small group like Reese was advocating for at the beginning of the service or serving together on a team, these are essential to following Jesus because we grow in wisdom and understanding of God and his will, not only through his word, but also through one another, through God's people. And then this leads to the third way that we live a life worthy of Jesus. Paul says in verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Now the word that Paul uses for endurance here is the Greek word hapomone, which refers to a kind of conquering patience. It's the ability to deal triumphantly with any circumstance that life can throw at us. And then the word he uses uh, for patience is the Greek word makrothumia. William Barclay says that this word refers to a spirit which never loses patience with, belief in, or hope for people. Barclay goes on to say that Paul is praying that the Colossians will have an endurance which no situation can defeat and patience which no person can overcome. Lord, give it to me. Right? I think we all wish we had that kind of endurance and patience. But it sounds impossible. And quite frankly, in our own strength, it is impossible. But Paul says that we don't do this in our own strength. We don't obtain this kind of patience and endurance ourselves. He says that we are strengthened with power according to God's glorious might. That's good news especially for those of us who are feeling tired and weak. See, we don't have to muster up the strength ourselves. Rather, as we trust in the Lord, he will provide what we need. Isaiah 40 says, Even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise, they will soar on wings like eagles, they will run and not grow weary, they will walk walk. And not be faint. You know what? This was coming home to me as we were singing that song today. We're singing Christ Alone, Cornerstone, weak made strong through the Savior's love. I was just thinking, yeah, that's me. I'm the weak who needs to be made strong through the Savior's love. Paul knew that personally, he knew what it was like to feel weak. But he came to understand that his weakness wasn't a hindrance when it came to living a life that was pleasing to the Lord. Rather, by acknowledging his insufficiency and trusting in the Lord, he was told that Christ's power would be perfected in his weakness. And no circumstance can overcome the Lord's strength. And no human will ever defeat Christ's patience or his love. Now the final way that Paul tells us that we can live a worthy life is by giving joyful thanks to the Father. Now, I think that this one in particular could be tough for many of us. Because there are a lot of terrible things in this life that make it difficult to be joyful, let alone thankful. Many of our lives are filled with painful or sad experiences. Some of us have experienced the loss of loved ones or the loss of health, the loss of peace or security. So how do we then give joyful thanks to the Father for that? I'm not sure that we do. You see, many of the things that you and I experience in this world, they are not from God and they actually go against his will. Some things that we go through are a result of living in a broken world with a rebellious humanity. Yes, I do believe that God can use all things for good. I know the verses. I have experienced how God has often brought good things out of tragedies. But there are many things that we weep over that I also believe God weeps over them too. See, the key to being able to give joyful thanks to the Father amidst all the trouble that we face in this world is in the second part of this verse. It says, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have the redemption and the forgiveness of sins. You see, it's that future inheritance that we will share in which enables us to be grateful despite the difficult circumstances we might be facing in the present. The rescue that Paul speaks about in verse 13, it's reminiscent of how God liberated his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt back in the book of Exodus. Even as Moses was leading the people out of Egypt into the desert, the people at that point, they were experiencing joy though they weren't in the promised land yet. God had rescued them from their oppressor, and surely, surely he would also deliver on his promise to bring him into that good land. He said that he would. He delivered on the first promise. Certainly he will deliver on the second. And in the same way, Jesus has also rescued you and I from our oppressor. We have been freed from slavery to sin and the power of death. And though we certainly are not in God's country yet, we still may experience the brokenness of this world. Surely God will deliver us. Surely he will deliver on his promise to bring us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. He said he would. But you may recall that the people of Israel, they failed to hold on to God's promise. And they're joyful gratitude that they felt having been liberated from slavery to Egypt, it turned into grumbling and questioning the Lord when he didn't deliver on his promise to bring them into the land when on, on their timeline, on their schedule. It can be hard when we wait on God. Henry Nowen says, gratitude in its deepest sense, means to live life as a gift to be received gratefully. But gratitude, as the gospel speaks about it, embraces all of life, the good and the bad, the joyful and the painful, the holy and the not-so-holy. And I think sometimes the hardest that are the hardest to be grateful and to be joyful is in those transition times, in the waiting. And for this reason, gratitude is often one of the most difficult disciplines. But despite how difficult it is, Paul says it is, an es- it is essential that we have joyful gratitude in order to live a life that pleases Christ. Helen Keller, who became both blind and deaf at an early age, she wrote in her autobiography, For three things I thank God every day of my life. Thanks that he gave me knowledge of his works. Deep thanks that he has set in my darkness the lamp of faith. Deep, deepest thanks that I have another life to look forward to. A life joyous with light and flowers and heavenly song. There is no doubt that Keller experienced great loss and anguish at not being able to speak and hear. Some people might read her words and think, it seems ridiculous to be speaking with such gratitude towards God like this. They also wouldn't understand why we would concern ourselves with living a life worthy of the Lord, looking to please Him in every way. Because for some of these people, a worthy life is one judged by society's standards, what it deems as Good and successful. They would think, why are you living your life for someone other than yourself? That seems foolish. Certainly, you know, Mm -hmm. love your family, care for your friends, but the only person you should ultimately look to please is yourself. They might go on to ask, but what makes Christ so special? that we should center our entire lives on him and live to please him alone. Paul thought you would never ask. Paul quotes what is likely an early church hymn of praise in verses 15 to 20. And this hymn, it makes the audacious claim that Jesus is God, that he was not only with God at the beginning, but that he is the creator of all things. And that makes him worthy. And not only did Jesus create it all, but verse 17 says that he holds it all together. If it wasn't for Jesus, everything as we know it would fall apart. And that makes him worthy to center our lives around. The hymn says that all of God's fullness dwells in Christ, and that through Jesus all things will be reconciled, whether things on earth or things in heaven by blood, His blood shed on the cross. So that not only means that all people, all people, will one day bow down in recognition of His great worth, but every created thing will. every creature on earth, every angel or spiritual being in the heavens. All of them and each of us will one day recognize the supremacy of Christ and how our lives should have been lived for him. But you know, we don't have to live with regret that we didn't live our lives for Jesus. Each of us can know him today. And we can recognize his great worth right now. You see, it's not just even our duty to live our lives in service of King Jesus, but it is also our joy. Jesus says in Luke 28, he says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You see, the life that Jesus is calling us to live isn't only just to honor him, but he says here it's our blessing as well. That means it's for our flourishing. Jesus desires you and I to live the best life possible, Though he doesn't promise that our lives will be trouble-free, he does promise us that they will be eternally rewarding. He goes on to say in John 14, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. And so when we live Christ-centered lives, this is how we show our love for Jesus. And he says, in return, we'll be loved by God the Father, loved by Jesus himself, and that he will show himself to us. That is an amazing promise. And isn't that what we all long for? It's what I want so desperately, to know the love of God and to see Jesus face to face. And over the next few weeks, We will continue to explore our vision and core values as a church. And as we work together to make these a reality over the months and years to come, we need to continue to remember who is central to it all. So as we make every effort to be more cross-cultural and more intergenerational, we will do this knowing that it pleases Jesus. Because we know it pleases the Lord, we will work diligently to model unity, to live prayerfully. And even when it's hard to be generous or to live redemptive, Christ-centered lives in this broken world, we will choose to do it together with joy because we believe that Christ is worthy. Would you stand with me to pray and invite the worship team to come on up? Jesus, we recognize you as King of kings and Lord of lords. That you are worthy of all the glory and honor and power and praise that we can give you. And we love you so much. And we thank you that you are so kind and generous. How you uh, left your home in heaven so that you would come down to live with humans. To show us the way. To bear our burdens. And to sacrifice your life on the cross for us. What love is this? that you have shown from heaven, but that you would die for us who are so unworthy, the King of kings. Oh, we're so grateful. We thank you that you will never leave or forsake us and that you sent your spirit to be with us and to empower us to live the lives you are calling us to. We pray that you would help us to band together and to joyfully step out in faith. Trusting you will guide us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.